Hi, Moving Forward listeners. This is your host, Rio, here. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know about something new. Patrons of the Moving Forward podcast have long had access to unedited video footage of many of our audio episodes. Those are still available at our Patreon, and they are classic episodes with both me and Corey, so I recommend you check them out. You can also use them to kind of relive those conversations. As of today, we've added something new to our patron feed. Patron-only episodes of the podcast are now accessible on a private feed just for you on whatever podcast app you prefer. These include lost episodes of the normal podcast that either were never published or were subsequently unpublished for some reason. They also include crossover episodes with other podcasts where Corey or I were interviewed about moving forward that you won't have heard unless you subscribe to those podcasts, uploaded for the convenience of our superfan patrons. And going forward, they will include special after-hours episodes of Moving Forward, featuring our guest stars such as Corey Cottrell, Chester Gaines, Aaron Hubbard, and more, in conversation with me. Whereas normal episodes of the pod are recorded in the morning over many large cups of coffee, these after-hour episodes are recorded in the evening over cocktails. So they're a bit more casual and laid back, but still focused on interesting topics. And they're a lot of fun, as you can imagine. So if you're already a patron of Moving Forward, be sure to go to our Patreon, where you can now access your own private patron-only RSS feed, which you can use to listen to the patron-only feed on whatever podcast app you prefer. You could be listening to it on the app you're listening to us on right now. If you haven't yet become a patron, now is a great time. You can by committing to a gift of any amount to the podcast, as little as a dollar a month. More is appreciated if you can afford it. The funds are used to grow the show by advertising to our broader audience, so your support will help this project reach more people. Whether you can afford to support the show or not, I thank you for listening and being part of the Move It Forward community. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today, we have Alex Cheney on, who is the host of the Yang Daily podcast, which has been around since uh, February, he tells me. Um, so I'm going to let him introduce himself, and then we're going to get to talking about the topic of the episode, which he suggested. Uh, but first, Alex, why don't you tell our listeners about yourself and about your podcast? Hey, y'all. So this is Alex Cheney. Um, I have a small podcast, which just covers like the daily news that's connected to the Humanity First movement and Yang's policies and just trying to keep people informed in an efficient manner and uh, engaged with the movement so that we can save people time so that not everybody has to go out and look for that information themselves because that can take like hours per day. So collectively, we can save a lot more time for activism, volunteering, that sort of thing. Great. Yeah. And so you say it's more broadly humanity first. So not just Andrew Yang, because of course he's not actually running for office right now, um, right. but he has already signaled he plans to run again 2024. Um, he also hinted at possibly running for mayor of New York, but it looks like maybe that's not happening. Um, you're following that stuff more closely than I am. Where, where, where are we with Yang right now? Um, I mean, he's uncommitted on whether he's going to run as mayor. Um, right now, he says he's focused on getting Biden elected, which makes sense. Um, oh, if only more of the Yang gang shared that vision of his. <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> uh, okay, great. So um, in terms of humanity first as well, so then you're talking about other, other candidates uh, who are running on a humanity first platform. What other sorts of topics do you cover? 
Yeah, I mean, anybody who's running on broadly Yang's policies uh, will get mentioned on the podcast and get promoted. Um, anything that's to do with UBI or data rights or uh, it'd be great to hear more about the American scorecard. Somehow that gets forgotten. But, uh, you know, all of those policies, the, the main ones. Yeah, I actually had temporarily forgotten about that myself. Um, I think that that was one of his more underrated innovations because, um, I mean, that's something that the president can actually do without having to involve Congress. Exactly. Um, And if uh, Yang does wind up in the Biden administration, which he's talked about as a possibility, um, maybe he'll be able to influence the Biden administration to implement something like that. Yeah, I'm honestly kind of surprised that we didn't see a lot of the candidates adopt that just because it's such an easy win. And it makes it's really underappreciated how much influence that would have, because it would totally change the incentives on which uh, politicians are being judged in their success. So it has the potential to really move the needle on uh, making democracy more representative of the people and more representative of moving society in a positive direction. Yeah, I wonder if maybe the more seasoned politicians like Joe Biden, because um, of course Yang is a is a rookie in politics, although I'm sure he learned a lot in his surprisingly successful run, considering everything that was uh, stacked against him, his lack of experience being uh, chief among them. But like, yeah, I mean, maybe some of the more um, seasoned politicians like Joe Biden recognize that it's a good idea to do, but that it's the sort of thing that perhaps you just do in office and not necessarily the sort of thing that you lead with and talking about on the campaign trail. Um, You know, Yang is a very, I saw highly intelligent, well-read, highly well-educated person. Um, And, you know, sometimes people like that can forget that the average voter isn't particularly um, interested in the wonky details of policy all the time, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish sure. they were more interested. They definitely, you know, you can get you can get a groundswell of support behind a very specific policy every now and then, like Medicare for All or UBI. But, you know, something like the American scorecard, Biden might have just concluded based on his decades of experience in politics that that's a good thing to do, but not necessarily something you want to run on in the campaign. Could be. I mean, I'm kind of... I've wondered about it, but I don't really have any suspicions as to why it's not being adopted. I mean, it might be that. Heck, for all we know, that could be the case with UBI even. I suppose, but uh, I have my doubts on that one. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, necessarily taking a position one way or the other, but, right. you know, like one, one thing that people don't put into perspective, they forget about when people complain um, about, uh, say, Bernie Sanders being for Medicare for all, whereas Biden isn't, is that Biden has actually adopted a public option with a Medicare-like yes. plan that's available to everybody, and which is frankly very similar to Andrew Yang's own healthcare policy um, that he was running on and that Bernie Sanders supporters attacked Yang over. But somehow the Yang gang doesn't seem as enthusiastic about it under Biden. I mean, I, from talking to people who are experts in politics and, and not just, you know, talking heads on podcasts like us, mm-hmm. um, one thing that I've been told is that you, you don't want to have confuse people with too many policies. I mean, like Yang had a hundred and some odd policies. Um, that nobody ever knew about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That to this point, most people probably still don't know about. Uh, so, you know, there might be something to it. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely dismiss the possibility that Yang could be very influential in a Biden administration without Biden 
just because Biden hasn't, you know, adopted explicitly every single one of Yang's policies um, this time yeah, around. Yeah, he shouldn't the have to either, right? I mean, no, no, he certainly doesn't have to. I, I, I mean, it just seems to me that like the benefits of having Andrew Yang within the administration are something that a lot of people in the Yang gang are are poo pooing at their peril. Well, I mean, I think we have to remember that most people uh, are either low information voters or they just get attached to one or two issues. Because I mean, we've all got jobs, we've all got lives, we're busy, we don't come home from a hard day of work and think, I really want to jump on the computer and research politics. You know, it's like, so you get attached to these issues, like it might be UBI, it might be M4A. And for a lot of people, that's just all that matters to them. And so a lot gets thrown out that really also should matter just as much, um, which is what you see with, you know, when burners are saying, you know, this isn't quite M4A. So like, I'm just dismissing this candidate altogether. Or with our own Yang Gang people saying, you know, if you don't support UBI, you're dead to me, um, which is something that I've been trying to introduce some nuance uh, to the Yang Gang as like, you know, Biden may not support UBI right now, but what he does support is democracy dollars and campaign finance reform. He's actually got a very robust history of supporting campaign finance reform, which is just as important as UBI, to be honest because that's the incentives of all our politicians and how our government works. So it may be even necessary to do campaign finance reform before we can get a UBI. And then, as you said, like he has actually a very good healthcare policy that is basically universal healthcare um, with a cost maximum that's pretty low. So uh, yeah, that sort of thing, like that should be enough reason to support Biden just right there. Yes, and, and even if it weren't for those things, the fact that the alternative is a wannabe dictator who is attacking our democratic institutions, attacking the rule of law, attacking the Constitution, um, and attempting to turn us into a banana republic military dictatorship run by a criminal mafia like Russia, where he you know, openly admits that he admires the leadership style of Vladimir Putin, who recently had his political opponent poisoned. Um, so... That's a pretty good example. I would say, I, 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 by the way, I understand, Alex. Yes, it is absolutely a, a privilege that you and I have as much time as we have to research politics and, and to shoot our mouth off for endless hours every week. Um, most people can't do that. I agree. But it does seem like if there was anything that the average person could have mental bandwidth to worry about, it would be the survival of democracy, the rule of law, and the Constitution. Right, which is why I've been very disappointed that this topic of the rise of authoritarianism and Trump's potential role in it uh, has not been talked about hardly at all on like the mainstream uh, networks or, you know, it's just not even in the mainstream discussion uh, of any politician, of any of the candidates running. Um, it's basically just like, you know, Trump's a bad person, but it's never about like he's a threat to democracy itself. That argument is never explicitly made. I've definitely seen it made, made a, in a few places, but I think you're right that, you know, talking heads on popular infotainment cable news maybe aren't making it. But boy, golly, there are like at this point, well over a dozen people who were themselves in Trump's administration have written whole books about how Trump's a threat to democracy. Right. Yeah. yeah so sadly, I was hoping that, you know, maybe people don't read, I guess. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. 
again, partly a time issue, but um, so I was hoping that maybe you could help me flesh out uh, such an argument that uh, maybe could help inform people and just help them understand, uh, you know, lay out the case in a logical manner um, rather than just, you know, partisan like or Trump's a bad person or that sort of thing. So I'm not as educated on this as you are or on anything in politics. As I said, I just uh, when I joined, started uh, working, you know, volunteering for the campaign like a year ago informally. Um, that was basically the first time I've ever been really involved in politics. I was just a low information voter before that. Um, but what really got me uh, concerned, so maybe we should start off with like, is this a real threat in America? Um, and what really got me concerned about that was seeing this world survey. Uh, tell me what you mean. Um, so there's this world survey where they do a poll um, in countries across the world of certain issues. Um, one of those issues was your uh, favorability towards certain forms of government. So, for instance, uh, they do these like every four to eight years. And so you get a historical timeline of how those opinions are changing. So one question that they asked, for example, was um, if it would be a good or very good thing for the army to rule the country. And in the U.S. in 1995, 6% of people agreed with that, that it would be good for the army to rule the country. Um, in 2011, that number was up to 17%. Another question they asked was uh, the portion of citizens who approve of, quote, having experts rather than government make decisions according to what they think is best for the country, end quote. That's grown from 36 to 49%. And the most telling of all the, was uh, in 1995, 24% of respondents favored a, quote, strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress and elections, end quote, which, if in case you missed it, that's a dictator. Uh, by 2011, approval for a dictator has risen to 32% in the United States. So a third yeah, of the country. I have seen polls like that. And I, I also saw another one that was really upsetting where they polled specifically millennials. And uh, almost half of millennials said that they didn't think that living in a democracy was an important thing. And over over half of millennials said that they thought that it would be a good thing to live in a socialist country. Um, right. So, you know, the, there's definitely a problem with populism and a rise or I guess you could say like a, a resurgence of anti-democratic and anti-liberal in the broad sense of the word um, ideologies uh, like fascism and communism, which right. were... Um, you know, tossed in the ash bin of history for good reason in the 20th century. I think part of the reason that it's especially a problem among young people is because they're clearly not being not paying attention in history class if they're being taught history at it's all. Not being taught in history class. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Problem, not in, not in poor communities. Um, not in public school, um, and probably not in some private schools. I mean, if you have a private school that you know the people running it are pro fascism. <laughs> Yeah, unless that, you're going into like a college course that's specifically about politics and historical politics, I don't think you're going to hear this stuff. And even I then, if they do, they might have an ideological professor who, you know, like Noam Chomsky, who tries to rewrite history in a, um, you know, in a way that puts a positive spin on on communism. Even though, if, even though he admits, of course, that authoritarianism is bad. Anyway, um, okay. So the first thing to say about whether or not it's a real problem 
I think is what you just said. Those those polls are worrying. They're not they're not, you know, it's not 80% yet, so that's good, right? <laughs> but the trend is going in the wrong direction. So I would suggest that right there, that alone proves that it is a problem worth worrying about. Then, of course, there's the fact that, um, you know, basically an entire party, admittedly a shrinking party, because there are people, educated people in particular, fleeing the GOP like a Trumpster fire right now, mm-hmm. for good reason, I would argue. Um, and I was one of them. But, um, you know, like that a whole party throwing itself behind a man who publicly says things like, I have absolute power. Yes. Right? Is example of the fact that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody who's supporting Trump thinks of themselves explicitly as pro-authoritarianism, but at a minimum, it suggests that they, they think that certain um, policy goals that they want to achieve are worth trading our democracy in exchange for, which is, Correct. you know, a terrifying pact with the devil. Yeah. And I think that goes back to, you know, talking about low information voters and single issue voters. You know, that's what that's kind of how it happens. They get uh, they get attached to something like, you know, abortion or whatever. And it's just all about that. And that means they're going to favor one party over the other. And then they end up uh, in team sports politics where they have to you know, they may end up defending all sorts of positions that they don't actually agree with, but because they need to get this one thing, and that's what really matters to them, they're going to make excuses for the rest. Yep. And I have to say the part of um, the Yang gang that is signaling that they're not going to vote for Joe Biden because he doesn't support UBI explicitly yet, they're just as bad. They're making exactly the same mistake. They're okay with destroying civilization itself because they want to pitch a fit about one policy. Which I support. Yeah. But, you know, it's not the only thing that matters in the world. Do they really think that their odds of getting a UBI are going to go up when we lose our ability to influence our government at all? Well, I don't think a lot of them believe that that's going to happen, which is part of the problem. A lot of them think that we already don't have a real democracy, right? They believe Trump's lie that the whole thing is already rigged anyway, which is hilarious because Trump won, right? (laughs) Right. So if it's rigged, then it must be rigged in his favor, but they don't seem to notice that. Well, I mean, it's rigged in certain ways. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like either party has uh, has rigged it for a monopoly or anything like that. No, it's but, uh, not. But um, it, I, 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 there's definitely uh, one party that is OK with cheating a hell of a lot right now. Um, that is true. You know, yeah. tr- Trump is trying explicitly trying to cheat in the general election. In, in the ways that Bernie Sanders supporters falsely accused Hillary Clinton of cheating um, yep. in the primary last time around and are falsely accusing Joe Biden of cheating this time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like as a, as a, a fiscal conservative um, ex-Republican, um, you know, I, I, I admitted, I was like, hey, I'm really glad that, you know, um, Bill Clinton ba- balanced the budget. I think that Obama did a good job getting us out of the recession. Did it go up as fast as we would have liked? No, but like the trajectory was clearly going in the right direction and it continued in the right direction under Trump until, until the, uh, the coronavirus because Trump inherited Obama's, um, economy. But one way you can tell somebody is a partisan and not a, not a conservative and frankly, probably racist and not a conservative is if they sing Trump's praises for the same exact thing happening under him that they wouldn't acknowledge under Obama. What does that say about them? Funny how that goes, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
Um, okay, so uh, just one, one really strong piece of evidence, because uh, we don't have time for a really long conversation today, unfortunately, I have another interview coming up, right. but one really strong piece of evidence um, for the fact that this, uh, the threat of authoritarianism under Trump specifically is true is that, as I said, multiple Republicans have actually written books about it. Um, so some that I've read recently were uh, The Corrosion of Conservatism by Max Boot, um, Joe Walsh, who left the Republican Party very recently, um, um, wrote a book called Fuck Silence. Uh, David Frum, who was an influential um, intellectual in the Bush years uh, and, and before that, oh, and, and still is today, <laughs> and he's still a Republican for that matter, wrote a book called uh, Trumpocalypse. Um, that was his more recent one, and he went, wrote one before that called Trumpocracy. Um, and they're both making that argument from a specifically conservative and Republican perspective. And even uh, Rick Wilson, now are coming out. Yeah, yeah. Rick, Rick Wilson, um, who's uh, part of the Lincoln Project now and was a lifelong uh, Republican operative, um, wrote a book called Everything Trump Touches Dies. Um, and, uh, actually this wasn't this, I actually, I don't know whether or not Gary Kasparov is, Kasparov is a Republican. I know he's an outspoken, um, neo, neoconservative because of course he's the world famous chess champion who fled the Soviet union, uh, and is, you know, super hawkish, um, and very anti-communism. He wrote a book called winter is coming that was published before Trump was running and was already predicting that authoritarianism was on, was on, a, on, a, on, on its way into the United States. So, People who tell you that there's no good reason to think that have to at least go read those books from conservatives and take them seriously before spouting that off, it would seem to me. Yeah, it's a really good thing that we have people um, from both parties coming out and, uh, you know, doing their patriotic duty to defend democracy. Um, I do, I would like to really quickly just kind of uh, make the case of what sort of things we commonly see and what sort of things a budding dictator would have to achieve in order to overthrow democracy. Um, because I know a lot of people don't understand uh, what leads up to that or even believe that it can happen in America. So just really quickly, I want to uh, address, like, if you were to going to try and take total authority over a country, what would you need to do? So um, as I see it, and again, I'm not super informed on this, but... Um, from what I've been able to cobble together in my free time, um, what I think you would need to do is, number one, undermine truth and rationality, which uh, what we're seeing right now is undermining unity among citizens to make them more emotional and tribal, which we saw from Trump in his campaign with going after immigrants, now going after protesters, calling them terrorists and making it all about that. Uh, you would need to suppress the free media. Um, any press that is critical of Trump is now considered fake news by Trump. Like the second that they are critical of him, even if it's Fox News, you would need to suppress education because education teaches people about how to disseminate between information and misinformation. Um, we've seen that from the Republican Party in general, actually, for quite a while, as educated are elites and elites are evil manipulators. Um, colleges are indoctrinating kids with liberal ideology, <clears throat> trying to suppress science with religion in public schools. Uh, you would need to normalize lying by doing it constantly, which we see from Trump daily. You would eventually want a state-run media, which I think we're getting pretty close to, with uh, Twitter, with Trump's Twitter and 
is partisan egotistical campaign press conferences, which is technically illegal. Um, you would want to surround yourself with yes men in the government, which he's absolutely doing. Um, so that's number one. Do you have any comments on those? Yeah, you want me to riff on those, or and and you have more examples, or do you want me I to give more, more examples? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's riff For on sure those. Shorter time, maybe I should just keep going. Oh no, by all means, we. I'm not. I didn't mean to say that. We've got at least another twenty minutes to go. Where <laughs> we can talk a little bit. Okay, um, you just jump in anytime you feel like. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, riff, I'll riff on these. Um, so, I, I mean, I think you outlined it pretty well. Normalized lying actually stands out to me um, as a, a, a. It's kind of an obvious one, but it, in a way, it's sort of the most terrifying. Yes. Of course, that's related to undermining truth and rationality, um, but it's different in the sense that it's not just about the act of lying, because as Trump defenders like to point out lots of politicians lie, or they would say all politicians lie. Mm -hmm. And there is some truth to that. Um, but you might notice that that statement, that very statement, all politicians lie. That is an, that is an example of normalizing lying. It means yes. that you now tolerate it. If you make that statement that, Oh, well, everybody else does it. So what's the problem, right? And that is, that is normalizing. So that's not just a, that, so that's not just an example of lying. That's an example of normalizing lying. And I think that it is much more corrosive because, of course, you know, a politician like Hillary Clinton, for example, might, you know, try to twist the truth or leave out a detail or even tell an outright lie every now and then. But the difference is a normal politician does that in an attempt to get away with lying, whereas what Trump does is much more like uh, it's much more of this kind of Orwellian big brother thing of whatever I say is the truth because I say it and I can say something that is definitely false and you know, it's false. I can be holding up five fingers and tell you I'm holding up four fingers. And if you're a loyalist, then you will, you will chant back dear leader. Yes, you are holding up four fingers. Uh, and that is 100% what Trump is doing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that kind of blanket statement of all politicians lying while it's true, it just erases the nuance of like, how much do they lie? And what kind of lies are they telling? Because usually, uh, traditionally, politicians have told lies that, you know, they just kind of skew a fact, or they uh, use it in a, mis in a misleading way. But we haven't seen something before where a politician is lying on a daily basis, just completely opposite of the facts, and just uh, making stuff up and pretending it's real. Yeah, exactly. The, the a useful distinction is between lying and bullshitting, right? A liar is somebody who is informed enough about the world and who respects the person who's listening to them enough to try to tell a lie in a persuasive way that sounds at least plausible given the information on hand. Whereas a bullshitter is somebody who just pulls obviously false crap out of their ass and expects people to believe it merely because they say it. Um, and bullshitting is something that has a very strong emotional appeal to people who are emotionally motivated to believe it. So if they, if they're emotionally motivated to believe, for example, that all of the problems in their life are due to brown people, then they are going to believe whatever bullshit Trump says about immigrants 
um, because it, it makes them feel better about themselves, not because they necessarily think it's true. I mean, they, they, they don't, they, they, they don't actually run it through a processor to find out whether it's true or not, because their epistemology has nothing to do with whether or not it conforms with reality and has everything to do with whether or not it makes them feel good in their racist soul. Yeah, absolutely. If it uh, conforms to their preconceived notions, then they're very likely to accept it with very little skepticism. Versus if it challenges their preconceived notions, then they're going to apply a great deal of skepticism, maybe even an unreasonable level of skepticism to that so that they can deny it. All right. Hit us with some more examples. I know there's a lot more coming. All right. So uh, then we have, uh, you're going to need to undermine democracy, right? So that means uh, sowing doubt about election security and viability. So stuff like the Democrats are rigging it, mail-in voting is fraudulent. You're going to need to sabotage voting, which means, you know, uh, potentially sabotaging the Postal Service, telling people to vote twice, which is something that Trump just did yesterday, uh, which is a felony that will cause chaos at the polling stations when people try to do it. Um, Refusing to commit to election results, which is something that Trump has said. He he will not uh, agree to abide by the election results. Uh, suggesting that you might serve more than two terms, which is something that Trump has said multiple times throughout his tenure, Um, and suggesting delaying the election, of course, which is something that he did quite like a month ago, uh, which was a huge, huge red flag. Yeah, so those are all specific examples of multiple ways that he's attacked the democratic process. Um, another example, the ob- obvious example, is um, the fact that he's welcomed foreign interference, uh, that he refused to put sanctions on. In fact, actually, he wanted to take sanctions off of Russia right after Russia had, and people forget this, they didn't just spread misinformation on social media, which is one thing. They hacked our voting system. They the the um, FBI and CIA concluded that they definitely did that. They didn't succeed at changing um, enough votes in order for it to have made a difference, but they broke in to and we have a very de- uh, decentralized voting system, which is actually something that protects us. Uh, but they they tried to hack hack key districts and swing states and were able to get in and attempted to manipulate the numbers and in some cases did manipulate them, but they didn't do enough to um, swing the election. Still, I mean, you know, there's a reason why attempted murder is still a crime. (laughs) You know, if you try to rob a bank and you get caught, right? Um, it's still a crime. And that's why there was bipartisan support for putting sanctions on Russia after they did that. And Trump opposed those sanctions. Yep. He, 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 um, the Republican Party controlled both branches of Congress, and they had to tell Trump, no, we're not going to let you like take sanctions off of Russia um, right after they c- committed an act of war against our country. Right. And, and of course, that, that's continuing, continuing now. I mean, he ended up getting impeached uh, because he was uh, trying to, to solicit um, for, foreign interference in our election all over again. Um, and, and he publicly welcomed it on TV. He, well, he asked Russia to commit a crime against yes. American citizens I do recall by that. hacking the Democratic server and releasing Hillary Clinton's emails. I mean, this guy could, could not be more blatantly and obviously trying to cheat at the Democratic process. Yep. And so I guess that brings us to undermining the law. So (laughs) 
Trump's, uh, for starters, Trump's entire business career was flagrantly criminal. Like, <laughs> that's basically un inarguable. Um, he committed crimes in office and got away with them. He got the Senate to invalidate an impeachment hearing, just refused to hear testimony and make it a completely partisan act of just ignoring the evidence. He uh, has fired everyone who speaks out against him or is investigating him, which blows my mind how he got away with this. Um, and he has used the Justice Department to silence political opponents like he recently did with uh, his former um, lawyer during the campaign, uh, is writing, wants to write a book about him, and he was using the Justice Department to um, try and prevent him from saying anything about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Trump is a sleazy criminal who has surrounded himself with sleazy criminals. Um, he owes money to the Russian mob, which is the Russian government. It's the same thing. Um, because he money to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, he does. But not you'd be surprised, not very many American banks, because American banks won't actually loan him money anymore because he's had his <laughs> businesses declare bankruptcy so many times. So, you know, like he he, he is absolutely compromised. Um, I don't think this is hyperbolic in the slightest bit. I think what I'm about to say is just 100% true. The man who happens to be the president of the United States right now is an enemy of the United States. Yep. He's an enemy of the law in general. He's an enemy. He's a, he's, he's not just trying to turn America into a dictatorship. He's doing it at wild compromised by a hostile foreign power that we've been in a cold war with for longer than I've been alive. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I call him the Siberian candidate <laughs> in reference that. to the Manchurian candidate. I mean, and the Manchurian candidate, they had, uh, you know, used uh, modern technology to brainwash and hypnotize uh, an American um, to, to to support Asian interests. Um, and in this case, you know, we have uh, a, a guy who is um, working for Moscow um, because he owes everything that he has to his relationship with uh, with criminals. I mean, it sounds bonkers to say. It sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, except that, you know, the most sane, sober, qualified, and including conservative and Republican people are sounding the alarm bells about this all the time because it's just happening. Yeah, that's part of the problem is that he's so he's so blatantly bad in all these things that it sounds crazy when you lay it out. It sounds like you've made it up, but uh, and we've been, you know, having people cry Hitler for so many years about the smallest details, just like calling Obama Hitler and everything, that now that it actually applies, it's lost its teeth as an accusation. But it really is the truth here. Like, he is following that playbook to a T. And uh, so, like, in addition to normalizing lying, he has also normalized um, criminality. Absolutely. I mean, I, there has never been a president in living memory who has had so many members of his cabinet and so many members of his campaign right. um, found guilty of multiple fe felonies. It's just astounding. All right. So then moving on, we have uh, oppressing the people through force. So labeling his political opponents as Antifa terrorists, basically 
you know, any protester can be an Antifa terrorist. We found out that the FBI was basically rounding up people and asking them questions, leading questions about whether they were part of Antifa, even if they had no reason to believe that they were um, calling in the military to suppress American citizens. That's got to be a red flag. Sending federal officers into states that do not want them, that have not requested them, that have asked that they leave, and then endorsing Gestapo police tactics such as unmarked vans and officers, no reason given for arrest, no declaration of arrest, no Miranda rights. Uh, and usually these people are released without charges because there was no reason to arrest them in the first place. Yep, you're right. That's all totally happening. Um, and of course, it's only made worse and exacerbated by the the criminality that some people do do. Um, some of them in the name of Antifa, some of them in the name of com- radical communist organizations. Some of them, frankly, are actually Trump supporters who are just trying to cause chaos and 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 make it look like um, it's Biden supporters doing it. I want to be really, really clear about this. Joe Biden represents the Democratic establishment, which is to the right of Donald Trump on trade and foreign policy, and is significantly more conservative than Trump in all the ways you just said, which is to say they believe in conserving our rule of law and our democracy and the Constitution, right, etc. So it is not Joe Biden supporters doing that. It is far left people who have much more in common with Donald Trump's alt-right base than they do with any real um, pro-establishment Democrat, or even what used to be a pro-establishment Republican until very recently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or it's all, you know, or it's all right people. It is is absolutely not Biden supporters. And Biden has gone out of his way to denounce all of that stuff. Yes, because very explicitly. Very explicitly. And of course, that doesn't stop Trump from lying through his teeth um, over and over and over again saying Biden hasn't denounced it. There is a person who is intentionally sowing chaos and violence in this country. And it's Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, because it serves him. Because if he can can persuade people that the only way to keep them safe is to further crack down on our rights, um, that's what he's going to do. I mean, our founding fathers made it very clear that if you believe that it's worth giving up your freedom for your safety, then you deserve neither. Yes, exactly. That's That would be the final uh, piece on my list is fear-mongering to convince the people that um, you know if they do not give up their rights to this strong hand, then there will be chaos in the streets, there will be violence. They are the only person that can maintain law and order and as you have said in previous episodes, and you made the very good point that um, when authoritarianism rises, it's always an opposition to another radical shift like communism or socialism. It's always uh, one radical move being justified on the basis of opposing an equally radical move. And so that's what he's trying to create right now with the protests. He's trying to make it all out to be riots that uh He's making the entire campaign about that because he needs that radical to um, justify what he's doing. Yes, and it's smoke and mirrors. It's all bullshit. The best response to that, and this is why I um, have upset my ex-co-host, the, the, the truth of the matter is the best way to avoid that is for the alternative to Donald Trump, which in our two-party system is Joe Biden and his party 
to explicitly denounce all of the far-left radicalism. They need to come out and say, we are not communists, we are not socialists, which Biden has done, to his credit, right? But it doesn't help. It doesn't help him that there are people in his, in his own party who proudly wear those labels. It doesn't help that there are people in his own party who are defending violence and chaos because they seem to think that you know criminality is justified in some cases. If you believe that criminality is justified as long as it's being done to support your political agenda, then you are no better than Donald Trump and his supporters. It's the same damn logic. Yeah, and that's because, you know, the radicals are not all in the Republican Party right now, to be clear. Like, uh, I'm not saying that it's just Trump supporters who are um, furthering this trend toward authoritarianism. You know, there are also people in the Yang Gang. There are people in Bernie Sanders' camp who also want to burn the system down, as you've discussed before. And so uh, perhaps we should briefly touch on, like, how is all that, how did we get to this point? Why is all this happening? Why are people moving toward authoritarianism? And as you said, um, I believe it's a rejection. I mean, it has to be a rejection of democracy, that people feel that democracy is not working for them. Um, and to be fair, I think that there is a, a fair argument to some degree for that when you know public opinion has uh, zero effect on whether a policy is going to pass in Congress. When people feel forced to vote between the lesser of evils every time, when they can't, they never get a chance to vote for who they actually want and have a chance of that person winning. Um, when corporations are basically in charge of the country, as you've said, it's a kleptocracy at the moment. And when people live in a place where their vote doesn't matter, you know, if they're a Republican living in a very blue state, then their vote just, it has no power. Yeah. Um, of course, the pushback against that would just be that all of those things have pretty much always been true. Yeah. Um, and in fact, actually, our democracy today is more fairly democratic than it has been in the past, right? I mean, so I think it's important for people to put things in perspective. When our country was founded, only land-owning white men could vote. Yes, true. Right? <laughs> so, I mean... The, I would say the I, I think it was Steven, Steven, Pinker famously, yeah. Steven Pinker famously said that um, um, academics don't like progress and academics who call themselves progressive really don't like progress. <laughs> and what he meant by that was that they, they seem really reluctant to ever admit that anything has ever gotten better. Uh, it, it, but that's just, that is so crazy because if you, if you're, I mean, I guess that's helpful if what you're trying to do is rile up your base, you know, that's kind of using again, more or less Donald Trump's strategy, exaggerate the problems in order to get people really, really scared and worked up, right? But that's not good. And and yeah, so I, I think I think it's really important that you and me and anybody else who has a platform, and by the way, if someone's listening to this and you don't have a podcast, but you have, you know, a thousand followers on Twitter, right? You have a platform and what you say matters and what you retweet matters. And I think we need to all make it very clear that Donald Trump's boogeyman of the far left radical does exist. It's a real boogeyman. But the reason it's a boogeyman is because they have nothing whatsoever to do with Joe Biden or the Democratic establishment, both of which are the new conservative defenders of American values against a traitor, Donald Trump. And that the, um, the, 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 the people he's pointing at have much more in common with his own supporters than they do with his enemies. Yeah, and you make a good point um, about you know 
over the long term, there's obviously been great progress in America. And I think part of the part of the reason that that is getting lost is that, you know, just people as part of uh, human nature, you know, we are focused mostly on the short term. We're focused on our own lives. Um, in fact, looking back and seeing all the progress that we've made before can even make people feel even more radical at, in the moment because they're like, well, I don't see anything huge happening right now. So it makes them feel that that progress has slowed and declined and that something radical needs to be done to kickstart it so that they can see that progress in their own lives. Um, so I think that's a lot of what's dri driving this uh, rejection of democracy at the moment, as well as obviously economics, because it's undeniable that over the last 50 years, uh, disposable income for the common American has declined largely due to inequality and wages not keep up, keeping up with rising cost of living um, and private debt has risen. And, you know, Andrew Yang makes all of these points. We've heard them before. Um, basically, the economy for the common American has not been going in the right direction for the last half century. Yeah, that's true. Um, and once again, just to put that in perspective, though, that is not a problem that's unique to the United States. That is a historical phenomenon, as Andrew Yang points out. That is a historical phenomenon related to the fact that we're transitioning from the industrial era into an information economy, where if you live in a developing nation, which is still industrializing, right, and to which we are outsourcing what little bit of low-skill labor we still need in this world, you're actually doing better. So that's why global income inequality has actually been going down the last 50 years um, and is actually at the lowest it's ever been in recorded history. Um, but in first world countries and developed countries, um, people who are working class, who are not you know, professionals or entrepreneurs who don't have a high level of education, who can't get a job working for a company in Silicon Valley, those people their incomes have been stagnant and in some cases certainly haven't even kept up with inflation. Um, although some of that has, has been offset by other things such as the cost of goods and services going down. Um, you know, like a one smartphone can now do things that you would, you couldn't have had done if you spent a million dollars on stuff before. So there, you know, there it's, it's, it's a complicated muddy situ situation, but it's undeniable that um, the working class of developed countries um, have gotten the short end of the stick Due to this historical development that is not the fault of anybody in the United States, it's just, or certainly not, it's certainly not the fault of the government in the United States. I guess you could blame all those evil companies that are taking advantage of new technologies if you want to, right? But bottom line is, it's happening all over the world. Every other developed nation is going through the same transition and is having the same problems, including places that have more uh, generous social safety nets than we do. And no doubt that softens the blow. And that's why we all support UBI, right? It's a, something we absolutely def definitely need. Um, but still, I mean, like unemployment was like down to like three or four percent. Um, actual unemployment was higher than that if you count all of the people who had given up looking for jobs. But it wasn't 50 percent yet, right? It only went through the roof because of COVID. 
Um, so there still are jobs to be done. There's still jobs that you can do working um, in the service sector, right? Um, and of course, if we had UBIs, that would just create more jobs because it would make it easier for other people to create new businesses. It would be this huge stimulus going into local economies and help to save all of these dying towns that used to be reliant upon manufacturing that is no longer being done because of automation and outsourcing. So those are all, you know, there's a lot of stuff that that we should hold our, our um elected leaders responsible for doing in order to um, adapt to this changing situation. But the average voter is only making it harder for our government to do that when they back demagogues like Donald Trump and when they refuse to do the sober, sane, obviously good thing to do that Andrew Yang is asking us all to do, which is to vote for a normal, qualified person who will listen to experts instead of someone who will try to turn us into a militarized dictatorship. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I totally appreciate uh, that you have a broader perspective, you know, looking at what's going on in the world. And um, I so I want to make clear that my perspective that I'm approaching these sorts of arguments from is looking at why people are turning to authoritarianism, in which case I don't think those people care that, you know, on a global level that uh inequality might be going down i think they're focused on their own lives and yeah to be clear i don't hold that against them but i'm just saying like it it does kind of um it does undermine the populist narrative that it's all because of some evil elite conspiracy when in reality it's just you know the natural consequences of technological progress sure um so i'm just i'm just trying to stay focused on like a solutions orient uh a solution solutions oriented approach to what's going on and what maybe we can do to uh, help stop it. And um, to be perfectly frank, I mean, I while you're correct that, you know, people should be taking their civic duty more, uh, more responsibly and making better decisions, really, I don't think that telling them that makes any difference whatsoever. I don't think it's going to, uh, you know, make them change their opinions or change their actions. I think it's just going to make them more defensive and more entrenched in their position, most likely. Oh, that's um, true. I mean, I don't think those people listen to me. Right. <laughs> if they ever did, I'm sure they turned me off a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So I, I might, this might be pointless, but, uh, <laughs> but so maybe we should turn to like, what are some actions that might actually be able to make a difference in reversing this trend and uh, making people more supportive of democracy and turning away from people like Trump. So um I, I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts too, but my thoughts quickly would be uh, that we need to get democracy dollars to fix campaign finance so that politicians are going to care more about what the people want than uh, special interests. We need to get star voting or ranked choice voting um, to fix the lesser of evils problem so people actually feel that they have a realistic option to vote for who they really want and they're not being forced into uh, voting for you know the establishment or whatever. Um, we need anti-gerrymandering to enfranchise voters and reduce partisanship because you know that's creating anti-competitive districts where people's vote doesn't matter, and that just uh, makes makes it easier for radicals to take over the parties because they're not having to they're not having to fight against the other parties' perspectives, just their own parties. So um, you know, that, that is such a key point. You are 100% right about that. That the, that kind of gerrymandering results in 
having so many districts in this country where the only election that matters is either the Republican or Democratic primary. And that's Correct. obviously disenfranchising everybody else in those districts. And it gives um, tons of undue influence to the most radical base of one or the other party. Yeah. And those are things, so those three things I think are um, represented us is correct in their approach that we need to pass those through state legislation and uh, get enough states to do that, that it becomes federal legislation because that tends to be the way that these things go. Um, other things I would say are proportional electoral college representation, which Yang supports so that, uh, you know, same issue, so that there's competition within states for people's votes. Um, American scorecard, we already talked about, fix the incentives of those who are, are in power. Um, publicly funded journalism is another whole other segment um, because that's a huge part of how we ended up here, in my opinion, is that people lost their trust in journalism to provide them a uh, factual basis for constructive arguments, which we have lost now. So people turn away from mainstream media um, somehow they ignore that they're turning to even more <laughs> biased, partisan, and less fact-based media uh, as alternatives. I think that's because the real reason they don't like the mainstream media is because it's not biased and it's too honest. Yeah, that, that's definitely part of it. Um, but I do think that we need to reestablish that trust because there were there were times in our history where the vast majority of the public believed that they could trust, you know, certain news organizations. And without that, we have exactly what we have now, which is facts are meaningless because you can just choose where you get your facts from and they don't have to have any basis on like, they don't have to be justifiable. Um, they don't actually have to be facts. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're false facts, <laughs> but you say they're true facts and people believe You mean alternative facts, sir. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it. Um, connected to that, I think we, we used to have fair reporting regulations in journalism that actually, you know, placed some, uh, you had to like give equal time when you were accusing someone, you had to give time to the accuser to defend themselves. Um, you had to, you know, there were regulations on what, what was considered a, a truthful fact and that sort of thing. Um, and then beyond that, I think we need UBI to fix the economic disenfranchisement because that's a huge driver of this. Um, it would also, you know, raise functional IQ and provide more time for civic engagement and 32 hour work weeks for the same reason. Yeah, a lot of these ideas are ones that Andrew Yang had. Um, public funding of the press is something that oh, yeah, if it was done. Weeks. Right. It, it, it's something that if it was done in the wrong way could actually be bad, right? Because you don't you don't want the government to use funding as you know a way of controlling the media and punishing them for not publishing what the government likes. You don't right? want it to become um, Trump state media. <laughs> right, exactly. But Yang, that's not what Yang was proposing. Yang was proposing um, nonpartisan- um, um, Matching funds. Exactly. Uh, for individual uh, journalists, actually a big part of it for him was was just trying to, to save um, like local like towns, newspapers yeah. and things like that. Um, and, and, and so it's important to point out it was decentralized. It was radically decentralized, uh, his proposal. And that's why it, 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 you know, whereas obviously state media is the opposite. It's where you have a state run monopoly of the media. Um, by the way, that decentralization is another thing that Trump undermines 
uh, which yep. uh, you you did an incredible job running over all that stuff. By the way, um, one yeah, one problem is that, yeah, Donald Donald Trump um, is so awful and does so many bad things. It's not an exaggeration to say that every year of his presidency, he's done ten times as many scandals, real genuine deserving scandals, uh, than his predecessors did in their entire presidential careers. Um, so he, he, he's just, he does so many of these things and so constantly that when you ask me to give a list of them, I just thought, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like where to even start? You know what I mean? Cause it, it would be, it's impossible to remember them all. That's I just know. how bad yeah. it is. That's my problem too. Yeah. But so, so one of them, um, that you, that you touched on, but you didn't really go into detail on was, uh, you know, his opposition to de- the decentralization of power. He's consolidating power within the executive branch refusing to comply with the authority of co-equal branches of government. You know, we're saying he doesn't accept um, decisions by judges saying that uh, he, he, he does, he doesn't have to follow um, the rules that are set down by Congress, etc. Right. He explicitly told members of his cabinet to, um, re- to ignore subpoenas from Congress. Now, if you or I ignored a subpoena from Congress, we would go to prison, right? right? Well, in a country that has the rule of law, they should too, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, that the, the scary thing is, even with all of the people who have been convicted of crimes in within Trump's inner circle, if all the people who should have been convicted of them ha- had been convicted of them, it would be a hundred times more. And like his uh, executive order to enact the federal spending for relief funding um, to extend the UI bonus, that was a direct challenge to separation of power because that is supposed to be coming from Congress. They are supposed to be the only ones with the power to legislate federal spending. And what he did there was a sort of brilliant move where he put the the Democrats into a corner where they had to choose between um, looking like they are opposing relief for the people, or they can defend the Constitution and separation of powers by challenging it in the courts. Yes, so that's right. Way, exactly. Under, undermining the Constitution is another huge pillar that he's been going after. I mean, yeah. obviously, you gave specific examples of that. By, you know, uh, sending militarized Gestapo in to tear gas peaceful protesters. And to be clear, I have been as outspoken as you could possibly be about how rioters are criminals. They should be arrested. They should be prosecuted. But rioters and peaceful protesters are not the same thing. If you buy into the rhetoric that conflates the two, then you are buying into Donald Trump's assault upon our First Amendment right Mm -hmm. to free speech and assembly. Okay? So he's attacking the Constitution constantly. Oh, and if it if he, if it weren't for the fact that he knows that all of his uh, re- his supporters love their guns, um, he would absolutely be one hundred percent for confiscating all the guns. In fact, he even tried to do it. Um, <laughs> he made a big push um, for that after a, a, a shooting until some of his advisors reminded him that um, Donald Trump, don't you know your own supporters don't like that? And then he had to back go back on it. But <laughs> once he succeeds at turning us into a banana republic. Don't think for a second he won't be cutting your guns. He absolutely will be. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, as for like the rhetoric that's going around on the protests, I mean, obviously both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, are presenting a filtered image on that. Uh, 
mostly for the, I mean, I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but for the Democratic Party in general and uh, Democrats, you know, they want to ignore the rioting for the most part, and Republicans want to ignore the peaceful protesting for the most part. Um, where I see the big differential there is that Republicans are also ignoring everything that caused the rioting and the protests. They don't want to talk about police brutality. They don't want to talk about poverty. They don't want to talk about systemic racism. Like none of the things that are driving these, they just want to, somehow they think that uh, more force and more oppression will fix protests and riots that were born of oppression. <laughs> yeah, except they don't they don't really believe that. They know that it will ramp up the riots and that's what they want. They want more violence, they want more bloodshed because that justifies uh further militarizing the police and further and further um um cracking down on our right to free speech, frankly, right? Like he's going, you know, he's going to say, "Gosh, with all of these criminals out there in the streets, do do we really think that we should just let regular old people have guns? I don't know about that. Should we really let people assemble?" I mean, they say they're peaceful, but every time there's a peaceful protest, a window gets broken somewhere. So therefore, 100% of the protesters are all rioters. Um, right. Also, Alex, I take your point, but I, I honestly don't think that most of the people rioting are doing so because they're part of the BLM protest. I don't think that they are doing it in the name of the BLM protest. I think that they oh, I'm are. I'm not saying they are. Oh, I know. Right. But I'm just I'm just saying, like, I, I think I think that there are people who are criminals and who are taking advantage of the fog of war to do criminal things. They are not sure. Joe Biden supporters. Most of them aren't ideological. If they are ideological, then they are radical communists, which you know basically makes them the mirror image of Donald Trump's national socialist fascist Nazis. Yeah, I mean, um, so I, I'm not, I'm not even connecting necessarily any of this with the BLM. Um, that's kind of a separate issue to me. Like, there's police brutality, and then there's uh, racially motivated police brutality and um those are both issues for sure but uh oh yeah no for sure making... yeah i like I, it's, I would say i think it i think that um police brutality i would define as the unjustified use of force for any reason yeah, um exactly. and uh, race being one but also cracking down on um civil protest could be another as well but the other point that i'm making is um if you want to if you're saying like the republicans are saying that they want to stop the rioting and stop the looting. Um, I think if you're honest about that, then you wouldn't be saying we just need to crack down on this with the police. You would be saying what's causing this. And I don't agree that, you know, it's just a criminal mentality that people are born with. I don't think they're uh, that all of the rioters, like some of them might maybe, but I don't think all of the rioters and looters are doing this because they're bad people. I think there are definite, there's always incentives that drive people's behavior. And I think the predominantly those incentives are poverty and racism and these sorts of systemic oppression. So I think we need to be looking at those issues and how to address those issues because civic unrest always comes from, on a large scale, from feeling disenfranchised in society. I see. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to slightly disagree with you there toward the end here. No, uh, no disrespect intended. I, I think you'll fine. agree with me actually when I point out why I would just take out the word out always like certainly it can sometimes be related to that. And it is definitely true that there is um, a correlation between poverty and crime. Yeah, That's why I said um, large scale. Oh unrest. yeah. Well, okay, sure. But I mean, even large scale though, I mean, um, we, we've, we've had situations where, you know, um, sports fans who are mostly middle-class 
white people are, you know, rioting and turning over cars and setting things on fires and breaking okay, windows yeah, and fair. looting just because their team lost. You know what I mean? So, so like some people are just garbage people, man. <laughs> All right. That's fair point. It's definitely, yeah, there's definitely people can be driven to it. Um, so in wrapping up, I, it occurs to me there's actually also, believe it or not, even yet another whole category of examples of Trump being authoritarian, and that is his abuse of national symbols. So um, as you know, there's this thing called the Hatch Act, which it is true that, that the president is currently exempt to. That's that's true. But you know who's not exempt? All of the other Republicans in, in Congress who spoke at the, at the RNC convention that was taking place on the lawn of the White House. For an explicitly political reason, it was not a government reason. It was a politics reason. Um, same thing. All of the White House staff who were involved in that, every one of those people committed a crime. Uh, so the it's not an an, an an exaggeration to say that the Republican National Convention was literally just video evidence of a mass crime. Right. Yeah. And people right. want it, and that's the scary part. <laughs> As yeah. Scott Sands said, uh, quoting Star Wars. This is how democracy dies, to thunderous applause. Yep. And in uh, speaking of Scott Santons, is there anything you want to say in closing? Uh, moving forward is our gumbo. Sure is. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.